Welcome back to Future Women with Jamila Rizvi. I'm Boyana Koss, Programs and Website Director here at Future Women. In this episode, Jamila talks about the impact of taking time off work to have children. Unfortunately, taking maternity leave is still a major factor in the gender pay gap, lower superannuation levels for women, and the loss of opportunities for promotion. We know that when women return from leave, they're also more likely to work part-time or even casually. Add on to that the fact that having a baby is a huge identity shift, with one in five Australian women experiencing perinatal depression or anxiety. Last year, we launched Jobs Academy to help women who have struggled to find work or balance work with caring responsibilities during the pandemic. 140 Jobs Academy members have joined the Future Women community for free. They'll take part in mentoring and training and they'll have our support in finding employment. Jobs Academy is a new initiative of Future Women, delivered with the support of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet's Office for Women and in collaboration with Gidget Foundation Australia. If you're pregnant or a new mother or father and you find the themes in this episode challenging, we strongly suggest that you visit the wonderful team at Gidget Foundation Australia. Their website has fantastic resources that you can access if you're in need of support. There is nothing quite like pregnancy or birth to bring out all the emotions. You might be elated, concerned, upset, excited, but regardless of what else comes, there is always at least just a tinge of fear. And a whole lot of that fear has to do with expectations. Expectations that often go unmet. You're at 10 centimetres, but the baby's not coming. When you prepare for a C-section... No, 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 I, I, I have a birth plan. Yeah, we... Uh, I, I want to push, I want to push. I, I know, Wendy, but the baby's heart rate is falling. We need to move now. It's going to be okay. But I typed it. It's typed. The birth plan, it's ready to go. I'm ready to push. I want to push. Please, I want to push. Please. While in centuries gone by, that fear was mostly about health care and risk, for a lot of women nowadays, fear is centred around work and identity. So many of us define ourselves through our paid employment. And that means becoming a mum for the first time and knowing it will require a whole lot of time away from the workforce, that can be really daunting. It can leave you asking, who am I without my job? Today I'm going to be speaking with three brilliant women about how starting a family impacts your work and how to manage those challenges. We'll be delving into what is great and what is not so great about the current system and we'll leave you with a bunch of tangible takeaways so that you can make the most of what should ideally be a really happy, special time to bond with your baby. Coming up, I'll be chatting to Executive Director of The Parenthood, Alice Gagnon, founder of The Grace Tales, Prue Gilbert, and former Paralympian and mum, Jessica Smith. My name's Jamila Rizvi and this episode is... Baby, hold on. We're going on leave. More women have the opportunity to drive change. If someone says, I'm not a feminist, I ask, what is your problem? We must do better. So I want all the girls watching here and now to know that a new day is on the horizon. My anxiety around taking time off work to have a baby 
it's probably what's stopped me from having one. I was absolutely shocked to learn that most employers don't have to pay women when they go on maternity leave. When I came back after maternity leave, I really felt like I had to up my game. And I also felt like I couldn't bring my home life into work. I was actually more concerned about leaving my kids rather than the stress of going back to work. When I had my little boy, Ruffy, I really struggled to navigate how my working identity would mesh with my newfound identity as a mum. What I'd previously rather casually referred to as the juggle turned out to be infinitely more difficult than I expected. I felt alone and I felt angry. I was so full of plans and expectations and none of them turned out the way I wanted. So my husband and I, you know, had always spoken about starting a family straight after we were married and so we kind of didn't really have any expectations. Certainly with, you know, trying for children, we thought that it would take a while um, but in our case it didn't, um, which I feel extremely grateful about now. Uh, we fell pregnant straight away with my daughter um, but in terms of being able to understand the enormity of what parenthood would be and and how you know that process would evolve was something that I don't think anyone can prepare you for um, being pregnant I was expecting to feel you know obviously excited and, and over the moon yes but in terms of the physical side of things people expect you to be glowing I never felt any of that I was quite sick throughout my pregnancy and so I think because of that I had this really sort of disjointed idea of of what motherhood was because that whole journey of pregnancy was so not what I thought it was going to be like. Jessica Smith is a mother of two, former Paralympic athlete and motivational speaker. She says that the transition to parenthood for her was a rough one. Sleep deprivation is one of the hardest things a person can experience. And you, well, you never quite appreciate just how rough it is till it happens. In those early weeks of maternity leave, Jessica says she felt quite separate from the rest of the world, including her work. She felt like she was on the outside looking in, no longer connected to or a part of her community. I wasn't really sure how that would look in terms of being able to work and also um, be a parent. Um, but I don't think I was prepared for just how difficult it would be in terms of the, again, the pressures from society, the pressures from family members to either work or not to work. Um, I completely lost my sense of of who I was um, because I felt that by being a mother, I was in some silly way obsolete from the real world. And it was devastating for me. And so I was trying to latch on to whatever I could in, in, in terms of work, um, you know, little speaking gigs here and there, trying to write articles so that I felt as though I was still within society, even though I was. But the fact that I felt that because I was a mother and therefore not working uh, in those early days that, you know, who was I? And I feel sad that I allowed myself to think that being a mother wasn't enough. Jessica's experience isn't unusual. Alice Gagnon is Executive Director of The Parenthood, who lobby for a better deal for parents. She says these expectations don't just come from mothers themselves, but are reinforced externally by the media and society. I, I like to talk about parenting as 
parents because I really do think that we place an awful lot of expectation on mothers. We still, as a community, talk about mothers as being the primary carers for their children. Um, You know, when we talk about mums and dads, we kind of, you know, even when we say mums and dads, we really mean mums. You know, we – and and you'll see this in – newspaper reports and television reporting, you know, when a kid goes off the rail, we we blame the mum for, you know, whatever whatever decision she's made at, at some point in her child's life. It's like she has somehow, you know, done the wrong thing when in reality it, it probably didn't matter what choice she had made. Um, we would have said that regardless. Yeah, lots of the time mums can't win. Many mums, myself included, experience a disconnect and a strange lack of value when they go from being working people to a long period of leave. Prue Gilbert is CEO of the Grace Papers, and she specialises in advising women and companies on how to stay connected and engaged during a period of leave. Prue says that this loss of identity can go hand in hand with a lack of confidence, and it affects women detrimentally when they do choose to return to work. The first thing I would say is understanding what the cause of your lack of confidence is. Um, and same for organisations, is to understand that. Is it bias? Is it an experience of discrimination? Is it that you just haven't stayed connected? Um, is it a little bit of imposter syndrome when you look back at your career and you think, my gosh, who that was that person? So figure out exactly what is the cause of your lack of confidence because the concept of a lack of confidence gets thrown around as um, as the reason for women uh, not stepping up, not, you know, moving into leadership more when we tend to find that it stems from a couple of things, one being an experience of discrimination or, or uh, strong form of bias towards an individual and when that happens you need to be able to unpack it and figure it out and call it out Um, and uh, the second um, is actually not knowing and having some clarity around what you want when you go back and not knowing if it is something that can be achieved and often not even um, having a role model who you can look to to think Oh, it's been done before. So again, coming back to that, um, uh, that professional vision is a really great way to rebuild your confidence. Um, thinking about the bias and discrimination that you've experienced, have a chat to someone about it. It's, we find, you know, through our coaches, we can really help people to overcome their experience of bias and discrimination, which does affect our dignity. Um, you know, there's a reason why discrimination is illegal. Um, And it is because of the negative impact on our dignity, on um, our humanity, and that experience of being treated less than who we are that can cause the the confidence gap. So don't discount it. Um, Figure out what's causing it and start to address it. Prue says that a lot of the negative experience women have when they move in and out of the workforce around kids comes from bias and discrimination. She's experienced it herself firsthand. There was this assumption, you know, and it it happened like I heard it from uh, my CEO who said to me, I was in an acting role initially when I joined the organisation on a uh, maternity leave contract 
And, you know, my boss said to me, let's get this sorted and make you permanent. And I'd only been in that role for four months of a 12-month maternity leave contract because it's her second child and she they never come back after two. Jessica Smith experienced this too, ultimately realising that returning to her former workplace simply wasn't an option for her. Then realising that I, I wanted to get back into the workforce, trying to find the avenues to do that was, again, so difficult, you know, um, because I felt as though I didn't have the backing of former employees. I certainly didn't go back to my previous job because the, it just wasn't a supportive environment, you know, the, there wasn't the option to do part-time or to do less hours, you know, and I felt so much um, – Again, I keep using the word pressure and stress because it just wasn't set up to support me and the goals and the dreams that I had. And so I had to make the decision to try and work for myself and to try and do things that were going to benefit the family unit by working hours that suited me. But it wasn't easy. There's a myth, Prue Gilbert says, that women stop caring about their careers after they have kids, that their focus shifts. As a result, there is this unconscious bias that exists in organisations a bias that says women are worthless after they have children. A woman is viewed as a risk, not worthy of further investment. We need workplaces to focus on addressing the systemic biases that exist, and that's addressing uh, not just the way our systems are set up to see women as becoming invisible when they go off on parental leave and return, but also the perceptions of their people leaders around how do you manage the unconscious biases. Uh, so there's an educational element, there's an authorisation of the culture, and that really needs to be from the very top. And that's not just a policy but it's an articulation of what their vision is for gender equality. Uh, and it's also opening up about addressing those biases that they are aware of within their organisation. So they need to dig deep, listen to the experiences of people going on parental leave and coming back, and then make sure that their policies, but also their, their vision and narrative around gender equality is inclusive of addressing the specific biases that women face, um, and, you know, in particular, the ambition bias. Uh, the second thing is what women can do themselves. And we have a tool, for example, called a professional vision, and we have found that it helps to articulate your ambition in a way that aligns with your values um, and by virtue of that also mitigates the biases of other stakeholders. So when you can do that and engage uh, sponsors on that journey, um, then that really sets you up for success. And we'd recommend doing that before you go on parental leave, then engaging in a keeping in touch um, program or strategy to actually ensure that you are mitigating the biases because the research does say that, you know, and in some ways it is another form of unconscious bias uh, that people who do keeping in keep in touch are less likely to experience uh, bias while they are on parental leave. And then using that professional vision again to re-articulate your value to your organisation upon your return to work and using that as the centrepiece rather than going back into work saying, I want to work three days. Um, so people forget, you know, and if, particularly if you're taking six, nine, 12 months of parental leave, um, you can have change in stakeholders, change in managers. You need to help 
them to help you. So what are some of the policy levers that governments can pull to change all of this? The most obvious are paid parental leave and childcare policies. These can make it easier for women and men to transition in and out of the workforce around child-rearing responsibilities. After all, people getting back to work means more taxes and more revenue. This is a win-win investment for our governments. Alice Gagnon says it's critical that we find a way to keep childcare fees from rising further and also to ensure that early childhood educators are paid properly. There's a few things going on in the early learning and care sector that have an impact on the relationship between uh, parent fees and educator wages. Uh, Lots of people think that when we are talking about childcare fees hitting upwards of $160, $170 a day, that educators should be seeing some of that funding. What the providers will tell you, though, is that making a profit in early learning and care, and lots of the sector is for profit, is very difficult. Uh, We know that lots of childcare centres are actually run at a loss and are subsidised by more profitable centres in their particular networks. Parents don't have any more capacity to pay higher fees. They're really starting to top out at kind of what they can afford and that's even with the new childcare subsidy system, which in some cases is quite generous. In other cases, it's not great for families, but um, parents don't really have any more capacity to pay higher fees. Many providers are struggling to make ends meet themselves and to have a viable business model. Uh, So what we really need to see is better government investment in childcare, and that needs to be tied to educator wages. I asked Alice about the fact that some parents feel guilty about putting their kids in care. There's still this assumption amongst so many people that childcare isn't worthy of government subsidy, that mums should just stay home and look after their own kids. Alice says that we shouldn't forget that the benefits of childcare aren't just about mum or dad's return to work. Childcare benefits children as well. The first and most obvious reason to invest in childcare is because it supports workforce participation. Without it, uh, lots of families won't have the capacity for both parents to work. Uh, So we could potentially see some really drastic and dire economic consequences of, of not supporting early learning and care. The other reason why you would invest in early learning and care is because of the children. Uh, Early learning and care is really important for healthy and thriving children and there's bucket loads of research to back that up. We're talking about 60 years worth of international evidence to show that. We also know that early learning and care pays off in the long run in terms of offsetting future costs. PricewaterhouseCooper did a really interesting piece of economic modelling in 2014 to show By 2050, government investment in early learning and care could reap Australia up to $15 billion uh, in, in economic benefits. Prue Gilbert thinks we need to change the conversation about childcare. Childcare is absolutely critical. You know, often we go into federal elections and there are advocates for parental leave and there are advocates for childcare and governments will say to women who are the ones primarily driving this, which one do you want? We can't afford both. And I think that's a failure of all of us really, uh, not women, but as a society to not understand that 
quality early learning is critical to the development of every child. And we do seem to continue to have a lack of education around the benefits of quality early learning on children as opposed to childcare. And I think if we can change that narrative around improving quality early learning and making it an essential or even an extension of the education system itself, then we will be able to change that conversation from it being about just letting women go back to work. Another piece of the puzzle is paid parental leave. I asked Alice if she thought that the current government system for leave was sufficient. It's designed, of course, to be combined with an offering from employers as well. But most employers still offer zero paid leave. And what that means is that many parents miss out on a full first year at home with their new baby. It's just too expensive. The paid parental leave scheme in Australia... It's a great first step. It's not perfect. It's certainly not the most generous scheme out there. So of the 34 OECD nations, 33 provide some form of paid parental leave to parents. The overwhelming majority of them will guarantee up to six months of paid leave. Australia only guarantees parents up to 18 weeks of paid parental leave, and that's only if you earn under $150,000 a year. Uh, And we can have an argument about whether or not we should be providing leave to predominantly women, but to families who earn more than that. But um, there are certainly nations that will provide up to six months of paid leave to all families, regardless of their income. We can also do better by dads and partners. At the moment, Again, if you earn under $150,000 a year, we only offer dads and partners two weeks, which is nowhere near enough for the very important bonding that happens when a newborn arrives. We know from a raft of evidence how important it is for newborns to have an opportunity to connect with the people that care for them, um, not just with their mothers, but with their fathers and their other carers. That's incredibly important for their development and their sense of stability in the world. Prue thinks the solution is making the case to employers and to government that having a generous paid parental leave scheme is both good for the country and families. I think if you start really broadly and look at the business case for gender equality, most organisations now believe, uh, or most progressive organisations believe that there is a strong business case for gender equality. And core to that is ensuring that you can access the best possible talent for your organisation. And if you therefore assume that women lose ambition or um, pregnancy and parental leave is an inconvenience, then by virtue of your belief system around that, you are going to lose some of the best talent. But while we're advocating and waiting for the system to change, What can we do as individuals to make parental leave work better for us? How do we stay connected and engaged with work? How do we speak to our employers honestly and openly about our plans for the future? And what role does our partner have to play in all this? I would be suggesting that she firstly look at what her professional vision is and start to celebrate her achievements and record them and make sure that they are front of mind as she goes into parental leave. 
Secondly, I'd be encouraging her to have a conversation with her partner about uh, what is happening at home and what their expectations are once they become parents for her career, for his career. I'd be encouraging her to have a conversation with her partner about the kind of parenting legacy that they want to each leave, the rituals that were most important to them growing up, um, and and what kind of a father her partner wants to be because I think this is a conversation that is really lacking in Australia. Uh, we are still stuck with a, a male breadwinner stereotype and unless we dismantle that, uh, we will continue to struggle um, to drive gender equality at that particular point. I'd be encouraging her from the workplace perspective to share her professional vision with her people leader to create a keeping in touch plan to make sure that she's got some sponsors in place who are ensuring that she is not invisible while she is on parental leave and to make sure that whoever is coming in to do her role while she is on parental leave, she has had a conversation with them so that she knows they know that this is a parental leave um, contract or role and that she is not only handing over that role to them and the work to them, in a way that she sees works best, but she's also asking them to return that role to her in a certain way when she returns to work from parental leave. Jessica Smith says that the one thing she would change is her own expectations. If she could, she would go back in time and she'd cut herself just a little bit of slack. I look back at my, my pregnancy and, you know, the early days with my daughter and, and you know, I do I don't have any regrets. I don't wish I had done things differently. I'm glad I've been able to to learn from those experiences. I certainly wish I had been a lot easier on myself because, you know, I would tell myself daily that, you know, I wasn't doing enough. I wasn't doing what I was doing right and feeling as though I didn't have an outlet. I didn't have um, friends that I could talk to about that. Um, perhaps I did and I just didn't feel, you know, that I was worthy of sharing the fact that I felt like I was failing. And so when my second child came along, my son, I went into that whole experience with no expectations and I think that made the anxiety lessen so much more and therefore the experience was so much different. Um, but, but yeah, I think so many mothers feel the pressure to live up to societal expectations when it comes to how you're supposed to be a mother, how you're supposed to be a parent. And it's just so different for each and every one of us that when, you know, you're trying to live up to um, a certain ideal, when you don't, the, the shame and the guilt that accompanies that um, – is suffocating and it certainly was in my experience, but I know now that, you know, it, it is a learning experience um, and I, you know, if I was to be fortunate to have any more children that I would go into the next pregnancy with even less expectations, I think. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Future Women podcast. If you're pregnant or planning a family, then I really hope that this discussion was useful to you. If you'd like to continue the conversation, then you can do that in the Future Women community. You can also ask our friendly moderators to give you the links and details of the Grace Papers tools for writing your own professional vision, just like Prue talks about. You can also become part of lobby group The Parenthood by Googling The Parenthood and looking for the Australian website. Next week, we'll be discussing the all-important business of landing a new job, how to write a resume how to nail a job interview, and perhaps most critically, 
we'll be giving you a long list of pitfalls to avoid. If you're enjoying the Future Women podcast, then please take the time to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your pod. It helps other people to find out about us. And thanks to those of you who already have. You have helped make us number one in the business and careers podcast category in Australia this week. We are super grateful and we really do appreciate your support. My name's Jamila Rizvi and you've been listening to Future Women.